This is Exodus 12, uh, beginning in verse 1. It says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roasted over a fire with the head, legs, and internal organs. Delicious. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will, will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is the day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. For seven days you are to eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, remove the yeast from your houses. For whoever eats anything with yeast in it from the first day through the seventh must be cut off from Israel. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly and another one on the seventh day. Do no work at all on these days except to prepare food for everyone to eat. That is all you may do. Celebrate the festival of unleavened bread because it was on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. In the first month, you are to eat bread made without yeast from the evening of the 14th day until the evening of the 21st day. For seven days, no yeast is to be found in your house. And anyone, whether foreigner or native-born, who eats anything with yeast in it must be cut off from the community of Israel. Eat nothing made with yeast. Wherever you live, you must eat unleavened bread. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood in the basin, and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the door frame. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway, and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshipped. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. At midnight, 
The Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner, who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. This is God's word. Let me pray before we consider it. Father, thank you so much um, for this time together, for the chance just to enjoy good weather and uh, to reconnect with friends before heading into uh, spring break next week. And, and so I pray, Father, now, will you, will you meet us in whatever condition we, we find ourselves tonight? Some of us are stressed out and exhausted with all the tests we've got to do and projects coming up this week. Uh, some of us are just so ready for a break, ready to get away, ready to get back home anxious to reconnect with high school friends. Some of us uh, are dreading heading home and, in fact, are making plans to avoid having to be around family. Father, regardless of where we find ourselves tonight, believing, not believing, doubting, angry, stressed out, guilty, I pray that you will meet us and that you'll teach us. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the... um, One of the reasons among many that I love the show Breaking Bad is because the moral values of that show are incredibly countercultural. To explain what I mean by that, let me just kind of set up a scene from the show. I forget what season this particular scene is. It's one of my favorite scenes in the entire show. This won't spoil anything. I I shouldn't. Um, But the scene is that Jesse, who is uh, one of the drug dealers on the show... Uh, and who's, uh, has his own sort of battles with drug addiction, um, he finds himself in a um, rehab uh, kind of conversational room, meeting, kind of like an AA meeting. So there's, a, there's chairs in a circle, and they're in a basement, kind of in the basement of a church. And it looks promising. It looks like the reason he's there is to work on his drug addiction, but actually you know the reason he's there is because he's a drug dealer. He's thought through... These people trying to break free of their addiction would actually be the best market to sell to because they're weak, they're vulnerable, and they will easily cave and they'll want his product. So because of stuff that's going on in his life that's kind of peripheral to this particular scene, he's feeling incredibly guilty. And he's sitting in this chair with this room of people, and he starts talking about how he has recently killed this innocent dog without any reason at all. And as he's explaining the story about why, about how he killed this dog, there's a woman in the group who's sitting there with them, and this woman starts accosting him. And here's what she says. She goes, what kind of person are you? Who kills an innocent dog? And the group leader kind of cuts her off and stops her and says, Colleen, we aren't here to stand in judgment. And Jesse kind of launches into this monologue at this point, and he goes, why not? Why not? Maybe she's right. The thing is, is if you just do stuff, like kill dogs, and nothing happens, what's it all mean? What's the point? Oh, right, this this whole thing about self-acceptance. And then the leader kind of jumps in and he goes, kicking the hell out of yourself doesn't give meaning to anything. And then Jesse goes on and goes, oh, so I should just stop judging and accept? And the leader goes, it's a start. And then Jesse goes, okay, so no matter what I do, hooray for me because I'm a great guy. It's all good. No matter how many dogs I kill, I should just do an inventory and accept. 
I mean, you back your truck over your own kid and you like accept? What a load of crap. And the leader goes, hey, Jesse, I know you're in pain. And then Jesse launches in and he goes, no, you know what? Why I'm here in the first place is to sell you meth. You're nothing to me but customers. You okay with that? You accept? The leader goes, no. And then there's this period of silence and Jesse leans back in his chair and he goes, about time. It's an amazing scene and I think it critiques our culture because we live in a cultural moment that prioritizes acceptance of all things. Accept everyone and accept everything. And in fact, the ultimate wrong in our culture is to ever say that someone else is wrong. And the way that you get out from under your guilt in our particular culture is that you give yourself a a self-esteem pep talk. You boost your self-confidence. And so we have songs that kind of talk about how everyone's beautiful. I'm beautiful, you're beautiful, we're all beautiful. I'm good, you're good, we're all good. It's just sort of self-esteem... Uh, pep talks, but I think the reason why this scene in Breaking Bad is so particularly powerful is because it demonstrates that deep down we just, we know better. We know better. No amount of self-acceptance, no amount of kind of a self-esteem pep talk will touch the guilt that we actually feel. So then the big question for tonight is then, okay, well, what do we do with our guilt? The guilt that we feel over stuff that we've done, the guilt that we feel over stuff that we're doing. I'm going to try to pitch to you that this passage tonight holds out for you the only solution. And that is a big claim. I understand. The only solution to deal with your guilt. And the way that we're going to try to get at this, to um, untangle this, is I want to get at this from three different angles. So here's your roadmap of where we're going tonight. I want to look at the intensity of our guilt the remedy to our guilt, and then the memory of our guilt. The intensity, the remedy, the memory. So let's start with the, uh, the intensity of our guilt. And, he, and here's kind of where I'm getting at with this. We've got to kind of remember to put this story in context. So if you haven't been with us or if you've already forgotten, um, people of Israel have been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. And God is in the process of liberating them. And so a couple weeks ago, we saw that he did these nine massive, devastating plagues. But life for Israel hasn't changed. They're still enslaved in Egypt. And so God comes to Moses in chapter 11 and comes up to him and says, Okay, I'm going to do one more plague. And I'm gonna, this will be the final one, and I will bust y'all out of slavery. And here's how the plague is going to go down. And he explains it. If you look at chapter 12, verse 12... On that long list of words right there, God says, I'm going to personally come down and kill every firstborn child living in Egypt. It is a universal judgment. As you can see, it includes both people and animals. It includes Egyptians and Israelites. It includes, if you look at verse 29, um, the rich, the people in Pharaoh's court, and the poor, the people in the lowest dungeon. Basically, God's going to come through and and everyone in Israel, everyone in Egypt rather, someone's going to die in every house. Even God, you know, God sort of makes this provision, I won't do it if you kill a lamb. But even that, you've got to kill a lamb and like spread blood over the top of the roof, over the top of the door frame. And so look at verse, um, the last verse in this long thing, chapter 12, verse 30. It says, everyone in Egypt is wailing, uncontrollably sobbing because there was not a house without someone dead in it. 
Now, I know immediately uh, many of y'all are kind of allergic to that because you're like, oh my goodness, what in the world? What do we do with this kind of bloodthirsty monster of a god that's just wanting to kill children and to, like demanding blood? Like, this is the reason why I don't want to believe in the God of the Bible, because it's like stories like this. And, and you know, I think that's a, a, a fair concern. That's a fair concern. But let, let me try to untangle kind of what's going on with this. Uh, biblically and culturally speaking at the time, the firstborn son was the representative for the family. That's just kind of the way it was. So... For God to judge the firstborn son, what he's doing is basically saying, I'm judging the entire family. And the fact that it's universal across the board, there's no distinction, everyone's firstborn son is going to be judged, shows that everyone is guilty. That's why, that's, that's why I'm saying that this passage shows you the intensity of our guilt, the gravity, the, the universal nature of our guilt. There is no one... No one that can stand before God by themselves and be declared innocent. Everyone. This is basically saying everyone comes in front of God with a verdict hanging over them of guilty. And that is why God demands their life. Everyone deserves condemnation. The wages of sin is death. And so because God's bringing about death, blood... That just shows you that everyone is guilty. Now, I know, even me saying that, some of you are like, whoa, whoa, everyone deserves condemnation. That's, um, that's a big pill to swallow. I, I like to think of myself as a nice person, as a decent person. I, uh, I may not be like hyper-religious, but uh, I try to be nice. I try to work hard. I try to take care of other people. I try to follow the golden rule. I, you know, I'm trying to better myself. How can you say, Matt, and how can you say, Bible, that everyone deserves condemnation? Okay, think of it like this. Um, Imagine an old woman who has a son, and she teaches her son um, how she wants him to live. And so she says, you know, I I want you to um, work hard and keep your promises and take care of the poor and don't lie and don't cheat. And let's just say... um, he listens, and so she, she saves up all of her pennies, she, she scrapes by, saves up all of her money to, get, to put him through college. So she puts him through college, saves, you know, kind of expends herself to get him through college, and after college he gets a job, and once he gets a job, he leaves and never talks to her again. Never acknowledges her, never thanks her for, for her putting, her through, putting him through college. Maybe every now and then he'll write a Christmas card. But he does everything that she asked. He keeps his promises. He works hard. He he, takes care of the poor. He does all of those things. He is a good guy, but would you say that that's enough? No, you'd say he's still culpable because he has not acknowledged and been grateful to his benefactor. And if you translate that spiritually, put it into this kind of spiritual realm, you could be a good person, a nice person, who takes care of the poor and does all these things and maybe every now and then kind of throws a Christmas card at God. Maybe I'll come to RUF every now and then. Maybe I'll go to church every now and then. If you're not devoting your life out of, out of gratitude to your benefactor for every breath that you breathe, you're culpable. That's, you being good is just not enough. 
You're culpable, I'm culpable. And the point, I know this is sobering and heavy, but you have to let that sink in. You have to let that settle in. Otherwise, the rest of this passage, the rest of the Bible, and the rest of life will not make sense to you unless you first swallow this big, bitter pill of the intensity of our guilt that everyone, regardless of distinction, stands before God guilty. Now, that leads us nicely to the remedy to our guilt. If that's the intensity of it, let's look secondly at the remedy of it. And the remedy is found in the Lamb. If you look at verses 3 through 11, God instructs the people of Israel, you know, what to do with this lamb. In verse 5, he says, I want you to take a male lamb without any defect, a perfect, spotless male lamb. And then in verse, um, what is it, verse 6, he says, slaughter the lamb at twilight. Verse 7, take the blood from the lamb, smear it over the door frames of your house. And then in verse 8 through 11, God says, eat it. Eat the lamb. Okay, what's going on here? What's going on with this lamb thing? Okay, look at verse 13. Here's what's going on. Verse 13 says this, The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. So here's what's going on. God is bringing about judgment on everyone in Egypt. Everyone. I mean, every firstborn, which represents everyone. And God says the only thing that will stop this destructive force that's kind of blowing through like a, like a hot knife through butter, the only thing that will stop it is when I see the blood of a lamb. And when I see, you know, you've slaughtered a lamb and put the blood on the doorpost, then I'll see that and pass over and judgment will not fall on the house. Here's what's going on with that whole deal with the lamb. Here's the basic principle there. The principle there is that God allows for substitutes. God allows for substitutes. And if you wrap your mind around that, that is, unbe- that is an unbelievable picture of God's grace. Because God could say, I'm going to hold every single person accountable for their life. And if every single person is held accountable for their life, then the human race just gets annihilated. But in God's grace, what he does is he says, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to provide substitutes. And in your place, something else will die. And when the blood is shed of the lamb, when I come to that house, I will say, okay, judgment has already fallen on this house, so I will not judge you again for judgment that's already fallen on the lamb. You get the idea there? This is the whole double jeopardy principle. It would be unjust for God to come up to a house and require two punishments for the same crime. You know, some of you have heard me use this illustration before, so just bear with me. But let's just imagine that you... Um, you kill someone, which I know is a, this is a, just an awful way to start an illustration, but there you go. Okay, so you kill someone, and let's say it's just, it's just um, without a doubt obvious that you were the person that did it. There's DNA evidence. You go to court. You have your time in court. The court kind of bangs the gavel, and you're just obviously declared guilty. You go to prison. And so you, you spend your sentence um, in prison, and let's say you, you get out after 10 years of serving your time. So after 10 years of serving for this crime, you get out, you get in your car, which is it's parked at the, uh, the jail. It's been there for 10 years. And so you get in your car, and you're driving home. And as you're heading home, um, you see a police car. Sirens come on. They pull you over and uh, pull you out of the car. And they say, hey, you are that guy. You're that person that killed 
that other person 10 years ago, you're guilty. We have your DNA evidence. And so they arrest you. They take you to court. You're brought before the judge. And the judge says, look, yeah, we, are, we have all this DNA evidence against you. You're obviously guilty. Bang the gavel. Guilty. In prison to serve another sentence. Now, the reason that story is stupid is because that's unjust. That doesn't make any sense. Nobody would serve the same penalty twice for, this, for one crime. It would be unjust, and it works the same way with God. For God to allow a substitute means that all of the penalties that is due to you have fallen on the substitute. Therefore, it would be unjust to force you to be paid, you know, to force you to pay for the same thing. It would be a cosmic impossibility for God to hold your for God to hold you responsible for your sin if a substitute has already paid for it. So, so okay. Let the grace of that sink into your minds. Put, put yourself in the shoes of the, Egypt, uh, of the Israelites. Imagine they're laying there that night. They, they've slaughtered the lamb. They've put the blood over the doorpost. And they're laying there in bed. And they're hearing in the streets screams and wailing of other people losing children. People dying in the streets. And they're thinking, okay, the only reason, the only reason that I'm not dead or that my firstborn son is not dead right now It's because of the blood of the lamb. That's the only reason. The Israelites were not spared because they were morally better than the Egyptians. The only reason that they were spared is because of the blood of the lamb. You know, the Israelites were not spared because they knew their Bible better, because they were more spiritual, they were more intellectual, they made better decisions, they voted in the right way, they listened to the right music. The only reason that they were spared was because of God's grace demonstrated in the blood of the Lamb. That's the only reason. Now, I know some of you may be thinking, that's awesome for them. What about my guilt? What about me? Okay. Well, centuries later, Jesus is starting his public ministry. And John the Baptist sees him from across the way, and what does he say? He identifies Jesus, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He sees Jesus, and he makes this connection, and he begins to understand, okay, the Passover story is just a movie trailer pointing to the reality of the true Passover lamb, that in Jesus, when he dies on the cross, when you find shelter under the blood of Jesus, the blood of the Lamb of God, That is the only reason, that is the only thing, your only hope that can spare you, save you from the judgment that you deserve. And he makes the connection. This is the only remedy to your guilt. Your only hope, your your only confidence, the only thing that you can bank on. Now, if you're anything like me, when you begin to feel, um, I'll just speak to the Christians in the room, or maybe for those that identify yourselves as spiritual. When, when, when you start to feel spiritually insecure, you begin to look for something to bolster your confidence, right? You look to something to, to reassure yourself that you're, that you're okay spiritually. And I'll just sort of be honest with you all about what it is for me. In, in my heart of hearts, if I'm honest, in the moments when I've sinned and I've blown it and I've, and I've messed up and the guilt starts to eat me up and I'm kind of rattled, the thing that I start scanning to grab a hold of, to, to, to give me some sort of confidence and security for why I'm okay in the world, the thing that I really grab a hold of 
is the fact that I get it. You know what I mean by that? In, in a sense of like, I get, I get the gospel better than other Christians. Which is kind of ironic because that shows that I don't. But in that moment, I, I, I look and I say, you know, I understand the gospel of grace in a way that, that, um, that actually kind of makes me cool. Like it doesn't, it doesn't make me one of those wacko, like weird fundamentalist Christians that like try to wedge Jesus into like everything. Like I get the gospel like good enough to know that like, like I'm cool. I'm above all that. And in that moment, what am I doing? In that moment, I'm looking for confidence, I'm looking for security, I'm looking for hope, and the thing that I'm looking to is me, which is a crappy place to look for stability and confidence, which may explain why I'm so insecure most of the time. So that's my, that's my dirty laundry. Let, let me ask you, uh, what's yours? You know, what is it in those moments when you feel spiritually insecure, you feel spiritually rattled, and you need some sort of security and stability, what do you look to? Because your only hope, the only thing that will give you security is the blood of the Lamb. And some of you, frankly, just need to take your eyes off of your faith. Some of you are obsessed with being sincere and surrendering it all to Jesus. And that is the thing that really that you're using to assess your standing with God, is how sincere you are, how, be, how much you actually believe, how much you've surrendered. You should stop taking your eye, you should stop looking at your faith, you should stop assessing your relationship with God based off of how emotionally intense worship was for you. You should stop assessing your relationship with God based off of your prayer frequency or your church attendance or the fact that you make moral choices that are different from people that you look down upon. You should stop looking to the fact that you do ministry and that you serve high schoolers or you lead Bible studies. What I'm saying is take your eyes off of you and put your eyes on the only hope that you actually have, which is the blood of Jesus, the blood of the Lamb. That is the only stable confidence that you have. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. And actually, I hope that when you take shelter under the blood of the Lamb and actually look to Him as the source of your confidence and as your security, it will actually give you an amazing amount of relief and freedom from exhaustion and joy and worship. To know that your status, your relationship with Him is grounded purely by grace, purely by the blood of the Lamb based off of nothing that you've done. That's the remedy. It's the only remedy to your guilt. The intensity, the remedy, lastly. How do we flesh that out? In other words, how do we functionally, practically live that? Well, I want to look at the memory of our guilt. And basically, I'm not going to read over this again, but this passage gives a lot of airtime to celebrating this moment of the Passover with a meal. Maybe you picked up on all that lamb, how you cook a lamb, how you cook bread stuff. Let me just kind of give you a quick scan of this. In verses 3 through 11, it's all about how to prepare the lamb for this Passover meal. All of verses 14 through 20 are about how to prepare the bread. 
excuse me, for the meal. Specifically, no yeast. And in verses 24 through 28, it just gets reiterated, this is supposed to be an annual, ongoing meal for the people of Israel. Sort of like um, Thanksgiving for us. Big traditional meal in which we sort of celebrate kind of our national history. But what's the point? Why do they do it? Look at verses 26 and 27. I will read this. It says this. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Tell them it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. In other words, when you're eating this meal every single year and your child comes up to you and says, why do we do this again? Your answer should be, the reason why we do this is to help jog our memories that while the Lord should have struck us down and had every reason to struck us down, strike us down, he struck down the Egyptians and spared us. And so the Lord wants, wants them to jog their memory through the process of this meal with all of the tastes and smells and colors and textures to remind them of God's grace, to remind them of where God has delivered them from and where he's taking them. And so, this, the, the, you know, this is actually, this is actually, uh, I'll, I'll give this to you for free. I think this is one of the secrets of the universe. I think this is one of the secrets of the universe. The key to your ongoing transformation is your memory. The key to your ongoing transformation is your memory to remember who God is and what he has done. The reason why your life spins out of control and the reason why my life spins out of control is because we basically live like spiritual amnesiacs. We forget who God is and what he has done. And we live like he's not there or hasn't done anything. So, for example, here's what this would look like practically. Already this week, or Tuesday of this week, already some of y'all have failed in some pretty major ways. You drank too much. You gossiped about that friend. You lost your temper with your roommate. You binged and you purged. You looked at porn again. You lied to your parents. You cheated on your test. Whatever. You failed in some way already this week. And if you, in that moment, if you remember, if you jog your memory and actually remind yourself, okay, I know I'm a failure. I know I've screwed up. And I know I deserve God's condemnation. But I stand under the blood of the Lamb. And that, what I've done, my spiritual performance as terrible as it has been, doesn't affect my standing with God at all. He loves me no less than he has always loved me. That he has nothing but delight and acceptance and glory for me. Not because of me, but because of the blood of the Lamb. But if you forget that... If that gets lost in your memory, then what you will do is you'll take all the guilt that you feel and you'll use it as the motivator to drive your life to buy back from God the thing that you already have been given for free. And what I mean by that is you'll double down your efforts to try harder. You'll make big resolutions to God and to yourself. I'll never do that again. I'll never look at that again. I promise. I'll read my Bible every single day. I'm really, I'm really going to start taking you seriously. I'm going to put you at the center of my heart. I'm, I'm really going to get it together. And you take all that guilt and you motivate yourself to get back into God's favor, which you already have. You've just forgotten it. And you're trying to buy back from God what you already have been given for free. So, 
how, what are some practical ways? I'll, I'll end here, and I want to be really practical here, but what are some practical ways that you can reinforce in your memory who God is and what he has done for you? Well, just like, um, just like the meal, the Passover meal for the people of Israel, it was supposed to be this ongoing thing. It was supposed to be built into the rhythm and the liturgy of their calendar. I want to suggest, too, that we, too, if we're following Christ, need to develop personal liturgies. And so let me give you kind of three suggestions. Um, here's the first. The first is to regularly, regularly, uh, celebrate the Lord's Supper at church. To, you know, no wonder when Jesus kind of institutes the Lord's Supper, he says, um, you know, this bread is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This cup is my blood poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You're going to forget. I know you're going to forget, but when you take this Element, you take these elements, it, it's a, it jogs your memory. It's a reminder. He is for me. I stand under the blood. Even though I screwed up, I have a substitute. Celebrate the Lord's Supper regularly at church. Here's the second thing develop uh, a habit of personal prayer. Because when you pray, you are putting yourself in a posture of need. You're basically communicating I need mercy, I need God, I need help. I need. And you're not, just, you're not just confessing that you need grace. Because you pray in Jesus' name, you're also proclaiming and embodying that you already have it. Here's the third suggestion. First is regularly celebrate the Lord's Supper. Second is develop a personal prayer habit. Here's the third thing. Develop a regular rhythm of reading scripture. This is rocket science, I know. Develop a regular rhythm of reading scripture. Now, here's the question. Have you ever thought about this? Why, why should we read the Bible? I think, a lot, I think every Christian knows that we should. We just feel guilty because we don't or we do it really poorly. But have you ever thought about why? Why should we be reading the Bible? I, this may sound sacrilegious to some of you, but the reason we read the Bible is not to learn more about God. And it's not to just get inspiration. The reason we read scripture is to see and to feed upon Jesus, to remind ourselves of his grace, to bask in the glory of the gospel, to jog your memory, I'm under the blood of the lamb. And so I'm going to dare to say, if you're reading the Bible and you're not regularly experiencing or even just seeing the gospel of grace, I'm going to dare to say you're reading it wrongly. So you think, you know, think about the meal for the people of Israel. It was nothing radical or revolutionary. It was just a meal. It's pretty ordinary. And if you think about the Lord's Supper, church, prayer, the Bible, there's nothing radical or revolutionary about this stuff. It's just these are the ordinary means that God has chosen to press into your memory the reality of his grace. And so final question. you under the blood of the lamb? And if so, how good is your memory? Let me pray. Father, we would ask for your mercy and for your kindness that you would jog our memories and help us to not live basically like functionally we don't believe that you exist. 
It's just so easy to forget your grace, to forget your goodness, to forget your commitment to us, to forget the fact that you've given up your own son in order to spare us. And I pray, Father, that that would, man, would that revolutionize us. Make us humble, confident people that love you, that love others, that would feel, sense no um, superiority over other people, but that we would we would see ourselves rightly as those that deserve your highest form of judgment and yet those that have received your most glorious form of grace. Captivate our hearts and our imaginations with that reality. And we would pray all that in Jesus' name.